Welcome to Mental HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship and Anabaptist World. I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger. Thanks for joining us today as I speak with Marla Hostetter-Krupp and Jesse Hostetter-Krupp. Marla is a nurse practitioner working in primary care focusing on adults, and Jesse is an emergency medicine physician in a large community hospital setting. Can you tell me about your education and your professional journey to your current position in healthcare? I graduated undergraduate from Goshen College and then spent a couple years uh, not really sure where I wanted to go professionally. I had always thought of medicine as a career. Uh, my brother had a major back surgery in 2001, and it was kind of after that and seeing the whole process of that take shape that really kind of got me back on track with medicine as a career that was something that was really interesting to me and also a career that was enticing and challenging throughout all stages of life. And at that point, I ended up going through the MCAT process and then went to the University of Colorado, where I graduated, and then went on to emergency medicine uh, residency at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I feel like I was always very focused and knew that I wanted to do something in medicine and nursing. My first real job was a nurse aide in a Mennonite home in the skilled unit taking care of geriatric and patients with dementia, bathing them and putting them to bed at night. And that kind of started the whole process and then got my nursing degree at Goshen. And then in Colorado, got my master's in adult nurse practitioner internal medicine and have been practicing since 2003. I have always admired your focus, Marla. I think of you often when I meet other nurses, and I think if you want to get something done, you ask a nurse, and you were the first person that really taught me that. Thanks. I think, especially in this past year, it must be really hard to have both of you practicing medicine in some form. If you walk the halls of a hospital, you might hear a physician or nurse joke about that their spouse isn't in medicine, thankfully. It's a profession that requires so much dedication to your patients and so many hours. How have you, as a couple, both in medicine, how have you overcome these challenges? I remember early on when we weren't sure sort of how it was going to play out in Oregon and hearing all the stories of New York City and hospitals there. We obviously were extremely concerned about Jesse and what he would have to deal with. And so kind of talked about if one of us had to step down, how would that look? And it's kind of funny because we sort of had this whole plan that I would take time off or cut my hours or do whatever I needed to do. And then things actually, because everybody was so scared, slowed down in the emergency room And it sort of seemed like I actually was that bigger risk because working for a private clinic, we did not have PPE. um, We did not have a plan and we still had a lot of patients coming in. And so my exposure actually ended up being a lot higher (laughs) than Jesse's. I think overall Oregon did really well. And so it was constantly something that we were talking about and just trying to be as safe as we can. And both of us kind of probably practice safer than our colleagues were practicing because of that and would supply each other. Jesse was very kind to give me N95s when he was done with them and we recycled and used <laughs> things. <laughs> I think it was kind of something that we always were in flex and trying to make a plan you actually worked less in the beginning. So he actually was home more, which was really a blessing too, because the kids were now home full time. We had a nanny 
that we shared with another couple who were both in medicine and decided the risk of having someone in our sort of bubble with all of our exposure was too high. So we also lost our childcare at the same time that all of this happened. It was a lot of being flexible and trying to change on a daily basis. Yeah, I think, you know, pre-COVID, it wasn't something that we probably thought that much about. It was just sort of how our lives worked out. Although it was always nice to have somebody that understood what we were doing. I think the last year has definitely been completely different, especially early on, as Marla alluded to, because there was so much that was unknown, so much stress, especially being someone that didn't have the option not to go into places where people weren't tested or deal with people with acute respiratory issues. It's just the nature of emergency medicine. There's just no other option than to do the job. I think there was certainly some trepidation about what does this mean for our kids? It's really interesting how the years worked out because it's been, I think, a, more of a blessing than anything else to have a spouse that know, like that gets it, if that makes sense, as opposed to someone that has a career where they don't understand what it's like to have to think about PPE and those sorts of things that those of us in healthcare, especially this last year, have been. So it's definitely been, a, I think, an unexpected blessing, even though initially it felt like an incredible stress or burden almost, just because we both had to go into places that were higher risk than non-medical settings. Yeah, really interesting that on first as the pandemic started, the fear would be for the emergency medicine physician, but then like the reality is it was the primary care settings where they're at higher risk because you don't have a plan, you don't have the PPE, you don't have the hospital provided PPE. And then of course, all the concerns for your family and your friends, your kids. Even though it's kind of where things started in the States with Washington having the first cases, I think the culture here has, and this is a very broad generalization, has been more accepting and adoptive of social distancing and mask wearing than some other places. And we really have been spared some of the horror stories that you've heard from other parts of the country. And also, uh, I was fortunate to work in a hospital system that had a reasonable supply chain for PPEs. It was always a concern, but never, uh, you know, a true shortage or uh, a dangerous situation and was able to bring, as, as crazy as it sounds now, <laughs> used PPE home for my wife to use when she went to work. Yeah, we still are reusing our PPE in ways we wouldn't not have done pre-COVID. I like that you found strength in each other during this time and the shared experience was actually helpful, not a shared burden, or maybe it was a shared burden, but that was helpful for you guys. Yeah. Jesse, I know we communicated briefly back in April, 2020, and you mentioned that the number of people who were visiting the emergency room at that time had decreased significantly. And Marley, you just mentioned it as well. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit more, like now that that's you know almost a year past, why that happened or? I think it was multifactorial. I mean, there's absolutely a tremendous amount of fear about going to the hospital for patients that didn't have an absolutely critical need to be in the hospital. So I think that trimmed a lot of people out of the patient population. And unfortunately, we've seen definitely sicker people in the second half of the year in general. I think the other issue is it sort of just as a testament of some of the weakness in our healthcare system that the emergency department is primary care for a lot of people and, you know, primary care, some, not always, but sometimes can be put off for weeks to months. And I think the non-emergent issues that people didn't have other options to have treated in a primary care provider setting just got tabled. And so they never presented to the ER. 
it's almost like it weeded out some of the folks who were really using the emergency room as a primary care setting. Definitely, yes. Marla, how has the pandemic affected the primary care setting? It has affected it in many ways. We scrambled to start a telehealth service to try to serve our patients as much as possible. I have mostly, I would say 75% or maybe it's only 60% of my patients are elderly. And so trying to get them on a smartphone or a computer to use a telehealth service um, with multiple chronic disease and issues for regular follow-up has really been a, a struggle. We've kind of come a long way and now I think everybody's kind of getting used to that. And so it's kind of come in waves where we do as much as we can over a video and then have them come in as long as they're not having respiratory symptoms. So now we have a good screening pattern. I would say, I think for me, the, the hardest thing I think is the mental health burden that I'm seeing on all ages of my patients, the isolation of my elderly patients who have not been able to hug their grandchildren, see their family in a year has just been devastating and it has definitely affected their health and their well-being. And my 20-year-old, you know, are just depressed. They've lost jobs. They are overwhelmed by the political environment. We've had forest fires out here. It's just felt like one thing after the other. And so in primary care, it's like, you know, you kind of become part of their family. And so it just feels very heavy. It feels like a very heavy position to kind of hold and, you know, trying to keep everybody both physically and emotionally healthy has, I would say, really changed. You feel like you're doing a lot more mental health care than you were doing prior to the pandemic? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's tough because we're not always trained as well as we feel like we should be in primary care or or in any non-psychiatric profession to deal with mental health. Are you still using a lot of telehealth in your practice? Not as much. I would say only 10% of my daily patients are telehealth. We allow the patient to choose at this point, unless they have an acute respiratory symptom, then they have to do telehealth because we're not bringing in people because of exposure. So that part has changed to kind of protect us and our staff a little bit more since we really don't have the amount of PPE that we need. Most patients would rather come in. Some people have found that they really like to call us from their bedroom or wherever. And so a lot of the younger individuals just like it because they their kids are at home, so they're at home and they you know want to just check in on a routine follow-up. It will be interesting to see. I think it's definitely going to stay around and be part of our practice going forward. So we're trying to, you know, as a practice, make it work better for patients and for us so that it's something we can decide what things are safe to do over telehealth and what is not. A lot of follow-up is, but there's definitely people who have acute abdominal pain or things that we really can't assess that we have to remind them that this is not safe practice and that they definitely need to come in. Jesse, in emergency medicine, very hard to do telemedicine. And you can't say to the person with respiratory illness that they have to stay home and and do it right via telehealth. So how have you dealt with some of those sicker patients, especially with COVID or potential COVID? I think, and again, this goes back to feeling fortunate to be in a system that has had good PPE. I definitely think that just being diligent about donning and doffing and hand hygiene and also just being very cognizant of 
just your space in the hospital, as well as proximity to patients and not doing portions of the exam where you have to get super close if it's not necessary are things that I've definitely changed in my practice. We initially had done a little bit more, not telehealth, but once we had done our initial assessment, more communicating via phones to patients once we've done our initial assessment. I think the biggest change has just been with being very diligent about PPE use, as well as just basic infection prevention measures at work. Like you said, we just don't have the option not to be in the room with patients. Like some parts of primary care work great over telehealth. Emergency medicine just isn't really that way. Besides like the PPE and maybe the telehealth, what are changes in your practice that you see will continue after this pandemic is over, if it's ever over? Or even like what's something that you have appreciated about your change in practice over the past year that you would like to continue? Do you have any thoughts right off the bat? You know, I guess I'm not sure that I have a real straight answer on that. I've spent multiple times sort of hypothesizing with my colleagues about how long we'll we'll be wearing masks. At what point do we feel like, hey, that's reasonable not to? Remember certainly intubating people with a very simple surgical mask, maybe or maybe not with eye protection, which certainly in any circumstance you could argue probably isn't a great idea, but now seems absolutely ridiculous not to do that. I think those sorts of changes, it'll be a long time, if ever, till I go back to doing those kinds of things. But I do hope that I can go and walk into a room and just sit down and talk to somebody without wearing a mask. There's an absolute necessity currently, but there is an impersonal component to that that I really miss seeing people's faces and communicating without that barrier. Having a largely elderly population and the amount of people when we're doing end of life discussion and pulse forms and stuff where I would normally sit very close to them or hold their hand or, you know, help them with their walker or whatever. I feel like that kind of touch COVID has really taken that away. And I think that's part of why all of my patients, even younger people have more emotional needs just because I think touch is so healing and important. And when we are terrified, we can't even be six feet and, I think we've lost a lot of that healing power. I definitely want that in a safe way to to come back. And I think if your hands are clean and you're wearing a mask and face shield, which is part of now my regular routine, that some of that touch has to come back in, even if it is a little bit more risky, because I think it is so important for healing. I hear you saying that we've come to second guess human touch and closeness for fear of either catching or spreading COVID, which has made us lose non-pharmacologic healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Getting away from COVID, how do you see your main mission or purpose in providing the kind of care that you do? How has your faith impacted your choices? That's a great question. You know, growing up, there was always an emphasis on Um, not just existing in the world, but being a positive presence in the world and doing things to help with healing as well as being in service to others. So that's a lot of the foundation of my faith. And I think that one of the things that is both extremely challenging in emergency medicine and also extremely rewarding is that, I mean, we take every single person off the street, off a mansion, out of the Mercedes Benz, you know, whomever walks through the door is our patient which I find to be, again, there's so many social challenges in the world currently that it can be 
fatiguing, but at the same time, it's so grounding in the sense of, I think on a daily basis, really reminding us of how fortunate we are to have families that are supportive, to not have to think about, are we going to have food to eat or a dry bed to sleep in? And I think going back to our Mennonite background, as well as faith impacts that. It's helped me to be, I think, more patient with social situations that are very challenging, just because it's given me the perspective to realize how fortunate we are, and also how much we can be Hopefully, while we may not have solutions, but a positive or a bright spot in that person's life that otherwise a lot of times really have tough lives and tough situations to come from. I think for me, part of my training and what I did in my Colorado practices, we took care of refugees that were were victims of trauma. And so we kind of were their primary care and had to do health assessment. And so we had to go through sort of this physical trauma training and how that plays out. And so now it's on my bio. And it's interesting because that was how many years ago? 15 almost? How that has really affected my practice. And, you know, I think part of that too, is just my SST experience and learning different cultures and also what Goshen really instilled in me. But I really know that people, I've gotten quite a few patients that have come to me because they read that and because they are refugees and have found me here at my practice. And um, and so it has been kind of part of my mission to try to continue to help them with the language barriers and the cultural barriers and the racial barriers to find a way to health and wholeness here. So that has definitely been part of my mission. And I've really enjoyed those relationships a lot. I think my biggest struggle and what I have to continue to remind myself is the difficult patients. I think the ones that, you know, you see their name on your schedule and you groan and like, oh, how am I going to make it through, you know, the next 20 minutes? So-and-so is coming in and, you know, whether it's a personality thing or whatever, and just realizing that, like Jesse said, you know, this is my mission. I'm here not to judge. And I have to find a way to care for this person and provide the same amount of help as I would any other patient. And I think in some ways it it becomes a a challenge because it's so easy to try to push those off to one of my partners or someone and say, you know, you should see, you know, I don't think this is a good one for me. And you know, trying to really kind of see through whatever is so irritating. There's probably a story behind it and it's probably just someone in need and then trying to find a source of that so that I can have a better connection and try to help that person better. So that's kind of how I see my faith playing out in my practice. I hear you both kind of saying that no matter if the person comes from a Mercedes Benz or straight off the street, they each have a story. And that story is important and it shapes who they are. And each those individuals are all really important. Absolutely. I, I have thought more than once. I mean, obviously there's not time, but, or even it's appropriate. I often think, you know, especially some of our people that we see frequently that again, we kind of groan when we see their name pop up on the track board, but really wonder what their whole story is and how that's shaped who they are. And certainly is. I do better some days than others, but every day my goal is to you know, meet them with an open mind and try and be a positive part of their existence that day. 
Do you have a particular patient or situation? And of course, all personal identifying information removed, um, a personal patient or situation that inspires you to keep going in your profession? I can think of a couple. There's a, a patient that I had several years ago that actually, it was in early February, she coded in the ED. Uh, and we were fortunate to have a successful outcome with that. And she came in a couple other times after that. And I had the good fortune to interact with her then. And she comes back, or the last couple of years has come back, you know, on the anniversary of her of this event, just to say thanks to the ED staff. And a lot of times, I think we just take it for granted that that's just, it's our job. It's what we do. But it's really fun to see people like that year after year and realize how what we do really has huge implications for people's lives, even though it feels like just day-to-day work for us. Yeah, that must be a pretty great day when she comes back. I've been there, like, she comes the, before I get to my shift or after I've gone home and I've, everybody's like, hey, patient, you know, so-and-so is here and she mentioned you and like, oh man, I got to do a better job of coordinating my schedule because I would really love to see her. Yeah. This has been a really tough year. How have you guys nurtured your own personal resilience, well-being, and mental health? I think the debriefing with each other constantly. I mean, we do have to be careful to not talk too much around our children because they get very annoyed and probably overwhelmed with our stories. But our closest friends that we have out here also are both in medicine. And in the last few months, we kind of potted up with them. They have kids the same age, and that has just been such an important just an emotional support for all of us when we are dealing with the the constant stress of high stress COVID jobs, seeing loss and death of our patients, and also just the normal parenting your child through online school and the political stress, the everything. So that has been super important. And just being outside, I think that's been a a huge release for our family. Yeah, I would agree. It's, I mean, having that support from other people that, again, understand what we're experiencing on a day-to-day basis has been pretty crucial. And also getting out and enjoying the nice outdoor opportunities that we have here in Oregon that lend themselves very easily to social distancing and not being in large groups of people. It definitely has been a challenge. I think I was a little bit shocked at sort of the emotional response I had to receiving my vaccine. Mm-hmm. I think that's been a, a huge source of resilience is just knowing that I might get sick, but the odds that I'm going to leave my kids orphaned because of COVID is not zero, but pretty close to zero, uh, which has been a, I mean, I think an incredible relief. And Marla just got her second vaccine on Monday. So we're close to being in good shape over here. <laughs> that was, I think, an unexpected boost mm-hmm. or underappreciated boost. Yeah, I was also surprised at my emotional response to getting the vaccine. I was surprised to learn that the vaccine really only works when you post your picture to social media. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I guess I better get on that. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the photo you can send to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Jesse and Marla, for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. It's been a great experience. Great. 
And thank you to our listeners for joining the Mental Health Cast as I spoke with Dr. Jesse Hostetter-Krupp and Marla Hostetter-Krupp discussing their lives and work in emergency medicine and primary care. If you're interested in donating or getting involved with MHF, please go to our website at mentalhealth.org and click on the link in the top right corner or email us at info at mentalhealth.org. During these tough times, we need you to financially support the mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue this dialogue about the intersection of faith and health. Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz, editing and production credits to Eugene Stamanis, and I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger. Please join us again next time. <laughs>